0: good morning good afternoon good evening welcome to this week's edition of the smie consulting midweek roundup it's wednesday april 12 2023 and this week we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days And as we do each week in the roundup, we want to say a special shout out to those that are watching live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or LinkedIn across our SMIE Consulting social channels. But also uh, uh, recognize those that are watching on repeat and taking in the information and our thoughts on these three questions of the day. Uh, But also uh, those who listen to the audio only podcast version, I want to say a special thank you to all of you who are making the roundup a part of your regular international edification. And as we do each week, we take our three questions from the news stories we cover uh, in the All the SMIE News Fit to Share newsletter that comes out each Monday uh, at 9 a.m. Eastern time, uh, uh, either through email form uh, uh, that you can subscribe to at our smieconsulting.org slash subscribe website. Uh, you can enter your details, see the archive of past editions, and then uh, get the weekly email 9 a.m. Eastern in your inbox every week uh, that will cover top stories on social media and international ed news and oftentimes where those two overlap. And that forms the basis of where we pull the questions we cover each week from themes of stories we see developing each in each week's news. Some uh, themes that we cover are variations on a, on a theme that we see happening on a regular basis uh, with new insights and uh, potentially new information that changes implications for Uh, what we do in international education. And obviously, we want to make the the time here on Wednesday a chance to go deeper into those uh, themes and questions and news stories to see how we can uh, leverage these uh, tools and these uh, themes and questions and answers, hopefully, into what we do in international education. And like we said, uh, we we have uh, the newsletter version you can get by email, but you can also, if you prefer, LinkedIn to get your international ed news and social media news, Uh, we have a LinkedIn version that combined uh, has over a thousand subscribers uh, in the international ed industry that are uh, getting the newsletter each week. So we appreciate, again, you making us a part of your journey each week in our field. So let's get right to the first question. Uh, It is, How Did International Education Respond to the Department of Ed Guidance? Now, if you remember, in February, mid-February, the Department of Education released this guidance that was initially intended to be for uh, uh, restrict uh, U.S. institutions from using uh, third-party providers who are outside the United States and or not owned by uh, U.S. citizens. From using any funds related to Title IV. Uh, Title IV basically uh, is surrounds federal financial aid, and this guidance would have prevented any f- funding that you that institutions get from from federal financial aid to support these third-party providers, primarily OPMs. That were the initial target of this uh, for. Uh, funding them through, uh, through Title IV money. So that was the initial uh, supposed intent of the Department of Ed guidance. And I use the quotes guidance because it's been anything but uh, a guide to how to do things properly in government speak. Uh, it's been the antithesis of that, and the international ed industry has certainly responded vociferously in the last uh, last month and a half since this uh, was released. March 31st was the deadline for public comment on the guidance that uh, the Department of Ed set out, and early there were early warning signs by the end of February after organizations had a chance to read this guidance that it sounded like there were it was a clear. Clearly poorly written uh, and did not, uh, ac- did not intend to have the, the, ripple, the, the consequences that uh, most international educators were seeing it could have uh, if it were fully implemented. Uh, there was outrage initially from AIRC, the American International Recruitment Council, uh, that saw the prohibition on working with or sending money from universities to pay agents overseas for students that they recruit for institutions. That was seen as a potential uh, danger area if this the guidance was fully implemented. You saw. Uh, study abroad uh, folks in international ed uh, raising a fuss because that would impact uh, most all prof- all relationships they might have with universities where there would be funding sent to help pay bills uh, for those students to attend study abroad programs or even thir- uh, study abroad providers that are not U.S. based or owned by U.S. citizens. They would have been potentially in in uh, in. In, in, um, in conflict with this new guidance uh, could have extended to any uh, third party that provides services to institutions in the recruitment or organization of study abroad programs or recruitment of students beyond agent relationships. So the, the impact on the international ed profession, if implemented, would be catastrophic. And rightly so. People have been saying, oh, it's just poorly worded. They really couldn't have intended to do that because the Department of Ed has really kind of stepped up in the last couple of years, been a part of the of the uh, Joint Statement on uh, Support of International Education that State Commerce and Education signed off on a couple of years ago and has uh, since been renewed. Uh, they've been more active in international education issues, so it, was, it would seem counterintuitive that they would then put this guidance in place that would kind of sabotage, in effect, everything that U.S. institutions have been doing internationally for the last uh, couple, three decades. So, uh, what's the what is the what is the response been from the international ed community? Uh, and it's fairly straightforward in terms of what uh, what the what the sector has all uh, all taken uh, t- uh, taken a unified stance on this. And there were. Uh, Uh, 1,100 individuals and organizations responded as part of this call for public comment. Uh, There's a Pi News article that provides a nice summary of all the various uh, actors that have been a part of the conversation. Uh, ACE, as they usually do, uh, NAFSA, uh, have all all been a part of this as well and, and drafting their own letters. And ACE warned that the re- redefinition of uh, what uh, universities could do with third parties abroad uh, if, if, if this guidance were fully implemented, uh, that it could impact nonprofit organizations and foundations that assist low-income first-gen recruitment. Uh, retention and academic counseling providers of clinical experiences for healthcare stu- healthcare students, mental health providers, ed tech publishers, and high school agencies partnering participating in dual or concurrent enrollment programs. So that's ACE's kind of uh, niche there. I uh, talked about what AEC would, uh, would 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 had problems with earlier uh, that that they were. That RIT, as an example, uh, said it's 500 plus students projected to participate in study abroad annually would be impacted. Uh, that the University uh, of California system, federal government, Federal Governmental Relations uh, Vice, Associate Vice President noted guidance would undo decades of work in creating study abroad opportunities that are accessible to all students in institutional, institution submissions. Uh, it could impact branch campuses of uh, U.S. campuses abroad. Uh, it could impact uh, uh, that Me- University of Melbourne in Australia said many of its students travel to the country uh, with the support of U.S. financial aid. So that's uh, uh, like I was saying earlier US financial aid implications uh, that was the whole main point of this title IV uh, prohibition on third party providers and it uh, r- again uh, seemed to be initially focused on OPMs but uh, the broader interpretation was taken to to mean any third party that outside the United States that's not uh, US uh, owned by a US citizen so uh, that uh, yeah, and, and as, as, the, as the PI article uh, con, uh, continues, it quotes um, uh, the NAFSA response in that the DCL uh, guidance letter uh, flies in the face of the 2021 joint statement uh, that we talked about earlier uh, that uh, the Biden-Harris uh, uh, administration could be relied, to, relied on to do everything it can to make your work easier in terms of international aid. So it would prevent need-based aid being used for students to study abroad, uh, it would uh, AIEA added that removing access to federal financial aid that Americans gain via Title IV funds will only further expand socioeconomic void in access to impact learning practices. So, I mean, it was really a a, a cluster F if you want to if you want to talk about it in in simplest terms. Uh, what I really appreciate and uh, about the NAFSA letter is that it really uh, assails the guidance as way, well out of bounds of what you would normally expect, and uh, actually calls it illegitimate in a lot of ways. It was a legitimate goal without a legitimate process or policy. That's the, the tag uh, from one of, their, one of their sections of their letter response that uh, while that the department has a responsibility, yes, to protect the interests of institutions, taxpayers, and students, uh, we're con- they, uh, NAFSA says, we are concerned the DCL fails to meet this goal because it imposes new requirements through subregulatory guidance without input from relevant stakeholders through an appropriate procedure and because it exceeds current law and regulations. Furthermore, as written, the rules of the DCL frustrate a goal of Title IV programs to provide greater educational opportunities to a broader swath of American students. The broad language of the DCL has created great uncertainty within the U.S. higher education community as it works to build back from the devastating losses to the international education during the COVID crisis. And they urge withdrawal of the DCL or definitely suspend its effective date uh, because it really didn't go through the right processes as well. Uh, That The department's attempts, another header, the department's attempts to substantively change the definition of third-party services Servicer exceeds the scope, TPS they call it, uh, the scope of the Higher Education Act and department regulations. So uh, it's it basically is trying to bootstrap new concepts into pre-existing definitions, and that means what a TPS is or a third-party servicer, not the TPS reports from Office Space, totally different to TPS, uh, but certainly as um, their new definition uh, causes more harm than good, which I think was the whole point of the TPS reports in, in Office Space to begin with. So, uh, we'll see where this goes, but based on the responses we're hearing from uh, educators, uh, international educators all over the profession, uh, as, as we said in our social post this week on this guidance, uh, on the response. Uh, it is, there's nothing like a, a good federal uh, poorly worded guidance uh, to rally uh, a poorly intended guidance to rally our community together. Uh, but I, I certainly think International Lab has realized its mistake and will be probably uh, redefining what, that, what, their, what the ultimate goal is and allowing institutions any lead time that uh, know, might need, need to be put in place to, uh, to affect the change that uh, any new guidance uh, that with its intended targets uh, certainly does. Um, does seek to regulate Uh, so we'll see where that goes but uh, hopefully this uh, the revised guidance which will come hopefully in the next few weeks uh, will portray uh, a more realistic approach to uh, addressing a problem in the industry and there is there there certainly are problems with overseas providers uh, particularly within the OPM sector in terms of promises uh, promises made on uh, costs, on uh, credits, and all of those things in online courses. So we'll see where that goes. But that, certainly, uh, hopefully, an ignominious end to uh, the uh, this Department of Ed guidance letter. So let's move on to our second question of the day. How can we avoid making mistakes, like the Department of Ed, in international education on campus? And this is uh, covering a couple of different uh articles I saw this week. Uh, one, uh, actually a, an excellent resource, I think, from uh, our colleagues over at IEP, RDP Connect uh, in the United States, uh, where they put out a piece uh, that uh, was based on the top 10 mistakes international admissions offices make and how to avoid them. Uh, and the list, they cover uh, of different uh, areas of admissions, marketing and recruitment, and strategy and operations and how they look at How we do international ed, Uh, so that was one of the first pieces I looked at. A second was uh, for specifically senior international officers, uh, kind of the the mega IE uh, international ed kind of focus uh, folks on campus and uh, what what where they're working and working as um, there was an article uh, actually the headline of. uh, Karen Fisher's uh, Latitude's uh, newsletter last week, uh, came out on Wednesday, was for senior international officers, new priorities and new challenges. And it talked about how uh, that these, uh, you, it was actually an interview with Ahmad Ezedin, uh senior international officer at uh, Wayne State in Detroit. And this was, uh, uh, this was an interview she did after, um, actually part of probably after AIEA, um, in um, uh, a, a, the AIEA conference in DC earlier in February, and uh, he talks about, uh, Ahmad does in terms of uh, the new, uh, the kind of working in the gray, uh, that uh, the work that universities do uh, is, and particularly uh, in international ed, uh, impacts uh, Impacts the world, and has to be that uh, that way. Uh, Now, in terms of the the challenges uh, uh, that he he makes clear in his uh, his response uh, to the article, where uh, the crises that come into play, and uh, that uh, the the decisions that you have to make on the fly, uh, really based on gut, really than uh, any necessarily sometimes to any data that needs to be. uh, uh, it needs to be, or can be assessed or uh, in a real, in a timely manner, uh, before a decision could be made. Uh, the impact he talks about the impact of COVID and uh, other challenges. Uh, there's uh, emphasis again now on enrollment and finances and maintaining support for all of these activities, both study abroad and. Uh, inbound students' mobility, as well as internationalizing the ca- the curriculum and the campus, providing research opportunities for faculty, and all of those exchanges that need to happen. So it's a he 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 makes the point uh, is that we're. There's a there's a lot of turnover. There has been a lot of turnover in the field, and that's been uh, an issue. Why are they reti- why are so many folks retiring? and the pressures of the pandemic and all these other things, uh, uh, international being the first area to get see to see cuts. Oftentimes, at uh, institutions that aren't as fully committed, or maybe just dipping their toes in the water and decide, well, maybe we didn't push the boat out too far. Let's step back. Um, he talks about uh, really the, the the challenges in the. In the field, the 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 reasons why uh, that uh, being in that in their positions to do good in the world to help address some of the world's uh, challenges. Uh, that the the hope that we can make it a better world, as Ahmad says in his interview. So I think there's a lot to, from the interview that I certainly encourage you to read. Um, uh, Karen's interview with him in her last week's uh, Latitudes edition. But uh, there's certainly some mega issues that uh, SIOS have to address, and uh, how do they avoid those mistakes? And he makes the case very clearly in his interview that it's uh, keeping senior leadership in the loop and hoping, hopefully, already as an SIO, already having the ear of senior leadership, presidents, provosts. Uh, that uh, can keep them up to date as to what's happening in the field, what world events are going to impact international education, and how that, how, how, what are the options for responding as an institution? Getting out of, in front of a lot of these issues early uh, is a, is always a challenge, and that's that's the role that an SIO has to play to make sure that uh, he's getting information from the ground up, seeing from. Uh, admissions folks, what those trends are in international in terms of where there may be some pain points in our, in, in systems that are, exist. He's hearing from study abroad uh, folks to fi- figure out if there's uh, any challenges we're having in terms of implementa- implementing more robust study abroad programs. He'll hear from uh, deans about some of the faculty challenges in, in internationalizing their curriculum and how they need support. So uh, some really solid things that Uh, obviously Ahmad deals with every day in his role as an SIO that you need to be prepared for and there are ways to avoid those and it means both managing up but also managing down and keeping yourself open as an SIO to the challenges that are are affecting your staff and uh, the students ultimately that are the beneficiaries of what you do. So great article uh, with Karen, interview with Karen that really touches on some larger points but the uh, I, I do point to the, um, for the kind of nuts and bolts for the international admissions folks. Uh, there are some uh, things that I, I've certainly written about before, uh, certainly when I was uh, doing some columns for, uh, for IDP Connect over the years. Uh, some of these issues that they bring up are ones that I've addressed. Uh, certainly, um, they are the ones that I, I, I see all the time in consults I've done with institutions over the years. Uh, And some of the pain points that I know at UNLV, we've certainly started to address. uh, And one of those, the first mistake up on on the board, taking too long to process admissions decisions. And I can't tell you how significant that can be to your overall success in enrolling students is if you have a deadline, or if you operate on rolling admissions and you make decisions as you get completed applications in your office, as we do at UNLV for undergraduates, uh, if you are taking more than a month to to make a decision uh, when you're on rolling admissions, you are m- going to lose students as a result. Uh, that uh, if it's a if there are process problems, uh, it could be. Uh, you have, that's mistake number one, t- taking too long to, to process decisions, to make decisions. Mistake number two is, is something that is also uh, a, a real challenge and a barrier in a lot of places having complicated, expensive, and time consuming admissions procedures. Now, uh, this is probably going to be uh, the complicated piece is if you've got a lot of recommendation letters, a lot of uh, essays, uh, a lot of extra things that you require as part of the application. Uh, if you're still requiring SAT, ACT, and potentially subject tests, that's a, a complication because uh, it also adds expense if they have to take additional tests, uh, the expense of your application fee. We have a pretty substantial application fee that we can't waive right now uh, because it, that fee. Funds positions in our admissions office, and that's something longer term is that we're working towards addressing. Uh, we don't have the ability to give out waivers. fee waivers uh, in in to certain groups or certain certain areas without some really significant mountains to be moved. So that's a challenge for us. Uh, we talk about time-consuming admissions procedures. Uh, this probably for us is going to be more uh, uh, on the graduate side, where uh, in the past, uh, for this past, this current recruitment cycle, and for previous cycles, we required uh, NACES, uh, a a credential evaluation from one of their approved. Uh, credential evaluators, uh, companies like OS or an ECE, those type of, one, those type of services. Uh, that adds an extra layer of expense and delay in students being able to complete their applications in a timely fashion. Um, each year we might have 100, 200 files that never complete because of that credential evaluator ev- evaluation that's required. Again, for us that's primarily on the grad level and for out-of-country transfer undergraduates where we, we would require uh, an evaluation of uh, transcripts from c- uh, college level work. So that's, that's a mistake. Mistake three, not aff- offering enough scholarships and financial support. Uh, in certain markets, you need to have some sort of scholarship uh, money and sometimes serious scholarship money up to half of tuition to be competitive uh, in, in getting students from certain markets. And a lot of colleges don't just don't have that or aren't willing to commit those kind of resources. On the recruitment side, some of the mistakes they say, using a one-size-fits-all marketing approach. And this is, you've got the same posts that go out over all your social media channels to students around that you hope to target around the world, but certainly miss a swath of the world based on which platforms you're posting on, time of day that you're posting on, all of the different things that you could do wrong in marketing uh, and where you're marketing your, your content. Failing to leverage current international students and alumni. Uh, and this is this is an obvious one. Uh, any any institution I work with in terms of comflows, we put together marketing content that we want to have available. Uh, I say you got to get your current student testimonials and them involved in uh, uh, whether it's videos, whether it's uh, video uh, uh, written testimonials that you can have translated, inserted into comflows, uh, having them available for online chats, doing all that, having the alumni, successful alumni, having their stories captured and then repurposed again in ComFlows and marketing approach. That needs to be a piece of the puzzle. Uh, and then also uh, not being available where and when students are looking. So that goes to timing again. It's not uh, You could be have the best content in the world, but if it's getting out there at times of days when they're asleep or not online, then you're miss, missing the boat there. Uh, on the operations and strategy side, uh, relying on gut feelings and past experiences instead of data to guide recruitment strategies, and that's so important. Uh, that you, if you don't have data to back up while you're doing certain uh, initiatives in certain countries, you, you're probably uh, shooting in the dark. Uh, that you're taking on too much at once. And that's something that you learn over time is that you yes I want to do this I want to do this I need to be there I need to be here but I need to go this conference I need to go that conference but you only have so many hours in the day and you certainly don't have unlimited budgets and when you do try and do too much you miss uh, miss the end goal and that's I'm trying to build something uh, uh, gradually over time to meet meet uh, meet targets that are realistic and practical and achievable uh, that you operate in a silo uh that's where you don't have the direct lines to the people that matter in other areas that can help support what you do and who need to know what you're doing and be be advocates for you up the chain and then uh, not having a yield strategy in terms of well you've got all these admitted students now so what's the follow-up what are we doing next to make sure we're converting them uh through the pipeline uh to get them in the door for the fall so all those are the 10 that idp's uh connects us uh has outlined and goes into some detail on their uh, in their most recent guide. Um, it's a downloadable uh, downloadable sheet uh, article that you can get. So it's a fairly it's a 17, 18 pages so it's well worth a, a read and as a resource, uh, I would certainly recommend having that uh, on hand as you go through your day. Now let's get to that third question of the day, and it's a, it's a big one. Uh, what is the future of international student mo- mobility? And no, we're not gonna answer that uh, in a Nostradamus sort of way today in terms of predicting that yes, we're gonna be uh, have twice the number of international students in the US in the next seven, eight years. Uh, I wish, uh, and certainly if more institutions got their uh, collective acts together uh, and found ways to uh, do international right, and, and including avoiding the mistakes that we just outlined in the previous question, and not uh, and not having government uh, guidance get in the way of things, and that's always going to be a potential obstacle. Uh, what I think this uh, question on the future of international student mobility, again, is looking more globally about. Uh, internationally mobile students. Uh, we've seen reports that uh, as of 2023, 2022 at least, there were uh, well over 5 million students studying outside their home country. Uh, we know that that's doubled in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, so the, num- the, the pie of internationally mobile students has grown significantly and will continue to grow. And the article that uh, kind of drove a lot of what we're talking about here in, a, in terms of a bigger picture view of student mobility through 2050, is a report from Holin IQ uh, that does uh, a ser- does a series of these reports uh, every fer- ev- fairly frequently that uh, they project an additional 1 billion post-secondary graduates worldwide through 2050. Uh, now, that's not all 1 billion post-secondary uh, graduates who are looking to go outside their home country, but that's just a, t- a total number uh, that would uh, be looking to uh, Need or looking for higher education opportunities, and that's post-secondary graduates. So that's those that are actually going to be coming out of uh, of secondary schools, going into college and university, and graduating in the next um, twenty-seven years. So that so there's clearly going to be a strong demand for higher education uh, in in the future through the next twenty-seven years or so. Uh, that that demand. Uh, because of capacity concerns in certain markets, uh, that, that clearly they don't have the capacity to to educate everybody who wants a spot in within their own countries, a lot of them will start looking overseas, uh, and that's that demand uh, for overseas education will drive obviously students to explore overseas options. Will all of those come to the United States? Clearly, no. If you've been listening to anything we've said over the last uh, three years of three and a half years of doing these, actually four and a half years of doing these. Uh, Uh, these lives, uh, you know that uh, that is not a process that happens uh, uh, in a vacuum. They don't all just come to the United States. Uh, That globally student, mobile, globally, mobile student pie, globally, global student, my... (laughs) global international student mobility pie has grown substantially, as, as we said, doubled, more than doubled in the last 20 years. Uh, we see that pie, our percentage of the pie in the United States, we were a third of the pie back in the 90s. We're now 15% of the pie and shrinking. Uh, but our overall numbers have over, over time have grown substantially as well, more than doubled in, uh, in the last 20 years. So uh, what the Holon report, the Holon IQ report looks at, uh, that looks at the, the demand for uh, higher education, but it also uh, looks at, uh, I mentioned we're at about six, five or six million about six million people uh, students studying outside their home country uh, right now. Uh, but they're anticipating as many as 8 million students studying abroad by 2030. Uh, so from about pre-pandemic 2019 to uh, where we're at five or so to as many as 8 million by 2030. So significant increases in a fairly short time, less than in a little more than a decade. So uh, Asia and Africa are going to be the key drivers of that growth. Uh, Asia is already 70% of the global student market. Africa is going to dig into their share overall. Uh, those two continents will approximate uh, 80% of the total global population Outside of their home countries, our total population of the world, uh, 80% of the world's population will be from Africa and Asia between 2060 and 2070. So, um, there the, the numbers that are coming from there, obviously that can't find places in their home countries for higher ed, is going to be quite significant as well. So, uh, does the analysis does conclude that most students, many students, will be seeking an English-taught degree or qualification uh, because Top institutions, half the top 500 universities worldwide are in the U.S., U.K., Canada, or Australia. Uh, global demand it considerably exceeds the enrollment capacity of those top-tier institutions, uh, so there'll be more competition uh, for down further down the chain uh, beyond the Big Four uh, de- 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 uh, big four uh, destinations. Uh, that uh, for the past 20 years, the Big Four have ha- held on at about 37 percent. Of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the globally minded students that are studying outside their home country, uh, that uh, their share uh, is gonna stay consistent probably, but other markets will come into play and there will be more other destinations competing for uh, those uh, same students. So uh, there'll be some notable shifts. Uh, the US uh, has lost about 15% of market shares I, sh- I shared earlier. Uh, especially in the 2015 to 2020 area, Canada gained the most, as we've seen with their 800,000 number currently in the in Canada, uh, as we've reported on recently. So there's some real good data in this report, but the bottom line is uh, total student spending uh, from the report. Uh, that was profiled by the in the of monitor this week. Total student spending is expected to be more than double to to over 433 billion by the end of this decade from pre-pandemic of just under 200 billion. That's globally, so uh, quite significant financial. Uh, resources that will be coming to those institutions that enroll international students through the end of the uh, end of this decade. So we'll see where it goes, but the future is certainly looking bright. It's going to be increasingly competitive, but there are more positive signs that students will continue to to go uh, seek out opportunities outside their home countries for higher ed. So hopefully, we'll all still be in in high demand jobs in in the coming decade or so. So until next time, that's all we have for the roundup this week, but we wish you the very best and look forward to chatting with you soon. Cheers.